my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Mark Moss Show where we are talking about the decentralized revolution. Of course, we're talking about politics, finance, and technology all coming together to change the world as we know it. Of course, that is Bitcoin uh, that is doing that. Now, um, I try to bring you everything that you need, the education, the latest breaking news, and of course, some interesting guests to give you some different insight into some different segments of the market. And that's what we're about to do right now. I'm sitting down, joined in the studio with Sam Callahan. You can find him on Twitter at Sam Calla, that's C-A-L-L-A-H. And uh, he's a Bitcoin analyst with Swan Bitcoin. Um, anyway, Sam, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Excited to speak. Yeah. We, uh, we were just recently hanging out in, uh, in Vegas at the Tone Vey's uh, Unconfiscatable Conference. That was a pretty yeah. good time. Great time. Yeah, super fun. I... Uh, I think I'm just barely getting my voice back from that, man. I, like after a couple of days, it seems like it's always yeah, like that's the, how it goes. Yeah, man, it's like the first thing that goes every time. I was like, it was it was a fun event. It was it was so so busy. I remember you you came up and you're like, oh, we're getting together next Thursday, right? And I was like, what the heck is next Thursday? <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, but but it it didn't mean I wasn't uh, looking forward to this because I was. Um, something that uh, it's a conversation I've really been looking forward to having. 
And uh, so I'm excited to dig into it with you today. Um, I've been talking a lot about, um, one, uh, People are thinking like, oh, this this Russia, this Russia-Ukraine war, could it lead in into a World War III? Um, and I think they're thinking, you know, would a war break up between U.S. and China or Russia, Russia and the U.S.? Would nuclear war happen? Things like that. And a lot of times I say, well, I think we're already in a World War III. Um, and that World War III is, is, uh, is the governments against the people. But even more than just the governments, it's really what I've been calling a coup of the central bankers, where the central bankers are really taking over the world. Typically, a revolution would be the people revolting against the government, but this is almost like a revolution from the top down. And um, uh, I've been looking at this chart, which I've been kind of building my worldview off of, and I think you, we talked about this, and it's this global public-private partnership. And it's like this org chart, and it has the BIS at the very top of that, which is, of course, is the Bank for International Settlements. Then below that is the central banks. And those are like the policymakers. And below that is then like World Economic Forum policymakers. And then below that, distributors, the IMF, UN, WHO. And then below that, so here we are like four levels down, is the actual governments, the enforcers. Um, but at the top is this BIS. And most people have no idea. They've never even heard of the BIS. Um, I know you've been doing a lot of research into that. So what, what the heck is this whole BIS thing? Yeah, um, I think you're spot on because what we have here is these large non-governmental organizations that kind of work in a stratosphere above governments. And a lot of people think that the financial industry or infrastructure kind of ends with uh, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. But we live in a very globalized economy and there's these large unelected non-governmental organizations like the Bank of International Settlements that has a lot of influence on the policy that governments make. And so the Bank of International Settlements is, the best way to think about it is it's like a bank for central banks. So think about the services that a JP Morgan does or a Wells Fargo does for a regular everyday person and just bring that up where the central banks are the clients and they go to the biz and they provide services such as short-term liquidity and credit. They do foreign currency exchanges and large transactions of like gold swaps. And uh, they charge fees and commissions to these central banks to use their services. So they're kind of like an international clearinghouse uh, for uh, the central banks. And then they do a couple other things. They are kind of like a very elite event planner where they hold seminars and committees and conferences for central bankers in their headquarters in Switzerland. And they also, um, they kind of have the best vantage point because they're above everything else where they collect, they have the largest database of banking information in the world. And so they have a mainframe computer and they sweep all the data and they have a really good vantage point to, to understand the flows of international finance. And so central banks and governments pick their brain as to what's going on in the plumbing of the financial system. So that's kind of the three things they do. They're a bank for central banks, they're event planner, and they're a, you know, a database center for financial information. Hmm. They got their hands and their tentacles and everything. Exactly. Um, exactly. Now, when I think about the central bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve doesn't actually create money, right? They create reserves that go to the commercial banks, and the commercial banks um, lend that money into existence when I buy a house, a car, a boat, something like that. Um, so the, the Federal Reserve gives reserves to the, the commercial banks. Um, what does the BIS do? Do they give reserves to the, to the Federal Reserve? 
Well, they have a special drawing, right, which is a kind of confusing. It's like a fiat money on top of fiat money that they can create and provide loans to uh, distressed nations and um, governments if they need to. And uh, so that's, that's the SDR? That's the SDR, yeah. And then the SDR is used as a unit of account for the Bank of International Settlements. And so a lot of times when uh, these central banks are using uh, the biz accounts, um, they're through the SDR, and so it's it's kind of like this money on top of money, and it's it's pretty confusing. But they created it way back in the day when we we're talking about um, the Triffin dilemma. People aren't familiar with that, um, but it was basically a way to take pressure. Go ahead, off the go ahead and fill us in on. Go ahead and give us the high level overview on the Triffin dilemma. Yeah, the Triffin dilemma really stems from the old Bretton Woods system when the U.S. was the reserve currency of the world, and it was kind of a when, problem when they when they when they were. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> different when it was a different system, right? When it was <laughs> yeah. when it was pegged to gold at uh, thirty-five dollars right. an ounce, and then all yeah. the currencies were pegged to the dollar. Um, because of that, because it was those reserve currency, if the U.S. Red ran large deficits, it was kind of a problem because if they ran large deficits, then the other nations would question if they had enough gold to back those dollars, right? But if they reduced the the deficits, then there was also a problem there because it would reduce the liquidity for the other nations. So basically, it was always this problem of dilemma where they could never reduce their deficits. And so the SDR was created to kind of try to take pressure off the, the dollar, the reserve system, by having a neutral bank provide res reserves in this different currency than the dollar. Um, and now it's stuck around. So that was way back in the 70s, and it's still still around today. Yeah, now the IMF, I thought, the IMF issues SDRs. Um, they get the SDRs from the BIS? Like they somehow work together in that regard? Yeah, they, exactly. They, they basically work together. They both they both have the unit of account as their as the SDR. Okay. Now, um, how, much, uh, how much do we know about the origins of the um, BIS? Uh, we know a lot, actually. Um, okay. Maybe give us a quick it. overview yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. Quick overview is uh, it really stems from the the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War One back in 1919, and it was very unfair. And uh, Germany was basically made to pay these really large war reparations that was basically impossible for them to pay because their productive capacity was destroyed, all the factories were destroyed, and um, all their men died, their labor force were dead too. And so they, they couldn't grow economically after the war and pay these huge war reparations at the same time. So what did they do? They printed a ton of money, and then it was the hyperinflation of Weimar, the Weimar Republic in the early 1920s. Um, after they kind of stabilized in the mid-1920s, a bunch of American investors started investing in Germany because it was the roaring 20s over there. And they were just throwing money at everything. And they thought, well, Germany's going to start rebuilding. This is a great investment opportunity. And then uh, millions and millions of dollars flowed into Germany until 1929 when the stock market crashed. And then all the money dried up. And then Germany was suddenly in a really bad position again, where they were worried that they were going to have a second hyperinflationary event in 10 years. And so from that, a convention came together and they said, OK, we're going to restructure these war reparations to make it more affordable for Germany to try to pay them. And we're going to create this neutral bank, this bank that's going to facilitate the war reparations and help move large funds across borders, um, kind of this large fund international clearinghouse that was 
created under international treaty in 1930. And that was when the Bank of International Settlements was created. And it's still at the center of the financial system all these years later. There's so much there I want to dig into. I can't wait to ask some questions about that. I'll be right back with more about the BIS Don't Go Away. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. All right, welcome back. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show. We're talking about the decentralized revolution that is changing the world as we know it. Now, one of the things that we need to know to understand the change of the world is to understand how the world is organized in the first place. I'm in the studio right now with Sam Callahan. You can find him on Twitter at Sam Calla, C-A-L-L-A-H. He's a Bitcoin analyst with Swan Bitcoin, which is a good place if you want to buy some Bitcoin, a place that I've used as well. And Sam was explaining to us about the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, which is the central bank above central banks. And he was talking about the the way they got their start. Now, Sam, you were saying that um, 1919 Treaty of Versailles, uh, Germany had to pay these war reparations. Um, They printed all this money. They had sky high inflation. Um, And then um, the Bank of International Settlements was like founded to kind of help deal with that situation. Um, Was it just like the richest people in Europe at the time came together to start the bank? Yeah, so it was um, the same people, if you're familiar with um, the story of central banks. There's actually, so there's the guy from, from the from Bank, Bank of, of England. And, yeah, the like Bank, Bank of, of England, England and the Reich, the Reich Bank. Um, it was the same characters uh, who started kind of all of the central banking um, that started the biz. And, and the reason why is they, they always wanted a bank that worked above governments because they felt that politicians were hindrance to them and they mm. were pesky and yeah. they just wanted to deal with their international finance. And now they created a bank uh, under, the, under the disguise of just helping these war reparations. They created a bank um, that had complete legal privileges and nobody could touch them and now they had their international bank so that's kind of why it was created it was created by central bankers Hmm. now um i i think it was murray rothbart wrote the uh mystery of some central banks and he talked about how the first central bank was the bank of england in the late 1600s and uh, they basically went uh i think England was fighting France and they wanted money from these rich people. And the rich people said, hey, if you let us start our own bank, uh, we'll give you as much money as you want. Uh, but we have to start our own bank and we ha- we're going to create our own currency. And you say that our currency is legal and we'll give you as much as we want. And so they were basically creating money out of thin air. Um, and I guess the central banks have been doing it ever since. And so if we if we take that story forward, you're saying some of these same people that came forward um, – and it's they operate above governments to the point of this like org chart that we kind of both kind of agreed on. Um, and you're saying that they can still kind of create their own money out of thin air by issuing these SDRs, which are based off of a basket of other currencies. 
Yeah, that's right. So yes, mm. the special drawing, right, as they're known. Um, they they used to be when they started, they were kind of pegged to one dollar based on the gold. But once Nixon took us off the gold standard, um, they basically change every five years in terms of what currencies are in there. It's, it's just a basket of currencies. Mm. Now, um, on an earlier segment, I played a, a clip, actually, of um, the head of the BIS, which is Augustine Karstens, and he was talking about, you've probably seen it before, um, he was talking about how cash, we don't know who's exchanging a $100 bill, but with CBDCs, we can know exactly who's doing it, and we can have complete control over it. Um, tell us about uh, some of their big plans they have for us, maybe with the CBDCs and controlling the financial system more. Yeah, so, I mean, this is why um, it's just important to understand what the business function is today. And it's really kind of creating the policy ideas in this. They have an innovation hub and they have these events where central bankers can get together and discuss, you know, what to do in the future about the financial system. And over the last, since about 2018, they've written um, a dozen uh, working papers on central bank digital currencies. They, this is the thing they're focused on, and they're really excited about it. And essentially, if, if you have a central bank digital currency, that would give them the power um, to basically directly target uh, their monetary policy based on information of an individual. Um, it would allow them to do things like negative interest rates, um, and it would give them complete control over who has access to the financial system and as well as a complete uh, surveillance of all the flows of international finance. And so they're, they're, they're loving this. They're just looking their chops yeah. and, and just, and they're loving the power that can, they could get from this. But, you know, to give them a little bit of credit, you know, I think they have some good intentions. It's like, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And they're thinking about all the benefits that CBDCs can bring. Like, oh, we could be more efficient. Um, we could finally give some cheap cross-border payments to people. Because even though we've had all this technological progress over the last decade or two, you know, sending money is still really expensive for people. And they've been trying to figure out how to do this. And so they're looking at the CBDC and just seeing all these positives. But they're not focused on all these like infringements of privacy and uh, the, the ability for them to basically weaponize this against people. They're not really considering the downfalls of a CBDC. Or maybe they are. <laughs> maybe or they maybe are. They, they are. They, are. they just think that the benefits outweigh the costs. Yeah, there's, like. a, there's a quote from Henry Kissinger from 1974. He said, who controls the food su supply controls the people. Um. Who controls the energy can control whole continents. So, of course, we see this ESG kind of narrative going over the whole world. So we control the energy through ESG. And then the last piece, who controls money can control the whole world. So I guess that's kind of uh, kind of what uh, he was talking about when they said that. Um, but um, back to this uh Let's talk about that cross-border piece. So um, that's one of the things. They want to create this more fair, equitable system for everybody. Um, and I was actually talking to an analyst, Jason Burak. Um, he's not a big crypto guy. And he said that uh, – he said that uh, – it's gonna, you know, the government doesn't doesn't have a way to facilitate trillions of dollars of cross border payments. I said any cryptocurrency can do that today. I mean, Bitcoin obviously, but any crypto really could. It's the policies that are in place that present the problems. Trying to go inside of different countries and banks. Um, so, do you think? Uh, I don't know if you've seen anything specifically about cross border payments from the BIS. Like, would they just usurp all the nation's laws, and that's how they make it easy? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that's actually what they said. They, they actually talked about having a what they call a multi-CBDC, which would be it would be one giant digital ID system that everyone would go mm-hmm. into. So definitely an infringement of privacy there. Um, and then everyone would be on this digital ID system in the single CBDC for the entire world. And so they're thinking, oh, this is going to be so efficient, right? It's all on one system. But then they say something very vague, like there will be a single rule book, quote unquote, but they don't say how that rule book would be made, who will write it, who will enforce it. Um, it would probably be a group of unelected central bankers uh, doing this stuff behind closed door in their, in Switzerland at their headquarters, because um, that's usually how these things go. But yeah, they, there's a whole working paper on it. It's called a multi-CBDC. A multi-CBDC, which means multiple countries all using the same one? Yeah, so the idea was they, they thought, because there's about 80% of central banks are already uh, you know, testing and experimenting mm-hmm. with their own CBDCs, but what's the point if they're all siloed right. by themselves exactly. with their own system? So they're, I think when they say multi-CBDC, it's almost like they're planning on you know, hooking up every CB, CBDC of a country into this one giant umbrella system. And they think that's a good idea. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I've often thought about the way this kind of works its way out, going from the commercial banks to the nation's central banks to the IMF, um, BIS, et cetera. I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about more about this global digital ID system because that's another big thing as well. Um, You're listening to The Mark Moss Show. I'm in the studio with Sam Callahan. We're talking about um, Bitcoin. We're talking about the decentralized revolution. We're talking about the BIS, which you may know nothing about. It's the central bank above central banks. And you may not know about them, but they know about you or they want to know more about you. Uh, So we're going to talk more about that, uh, the types of control they may want to have and what they can do with it. Um, So much more to get into. Uh, Don't go away. I'm going to be right back. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Hey everyone, welcome back. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show, and we're talking about the intersection of politics, finance, and technology. We're talking about the decentralized revolution, which of course is Bitcoin changing the world as we speak. I'm in the studio with Sam Callahan. He's a Bitcoin analyst with Swan Bitcoin. Um, you can find him on Twitter, at Sam Calla, C-A-L-L-A-H. Um, Sam, did they not have the rest of the letters for your last name or like what happened there? Yeah, well, dude, I, so apparently there's this like British pop star named Sam Callahan who stole, who stole um, my name, you know, if you look him up, he's uh he was on like the American Idol of the UK. So that's what I have to fight with. Got it, got it. So instead of putting a, a space or something in there, you just they're, dropped a couple yeah, letters off the last yeah, name. Yeah, they're all taken. All the Sam Callahan. Uh, dang it. Yeah. Um, on Twitter, somebody has Mark Moss, but they've never like used it. They don't even post or anything. And I've like tried to like reach out to him, didn't work. So I just had to put a, a number one in front of it. Which, by the way, if you're not following me on Twitter, it's number one Mark Moss. You should. Um, but anyway, so back to we were talking about this this BIS, um, <laughs> this BS. Uh, it, uh, but um, they've also been advocating for this global digital identity system. Um, what what have they said about that? So they're in like 
the design phase right now, right? They're still figuring this out. It's still many years out before anything happens here. Basically, they're trying to figure out, you know, how is this going to work while trying to maintain privacy? And I think that's more just like word speak because basically there's two ways they can do it. They can have an account-based CBDC where somebody has an account tied to their digital identity. Um, so a digital ID system and, and they have a direct account with the central bank. The other way they could do it is they could keep users anonymous and have a token-based CBDC, which would kind of mimic the private stable coins that we see today. So there's some kind of privacy maintained there. And they go back and forth about the pros and cons. And it always comes back to they say that they won't be able to stop illicit activity and money laundering. So, of course, we can't have privacy. And so they say, okay, well, we have to do these digital ID system with the account-based retail CBDC, which grinds my gears because if you know anything about AML KYC, they can't stop illicit activity or money laundering at all. They failed at that for decades, and now they justify surveillance and overreach in the name of stopping illicit activity that they haven't been able to do with their policies for decades. And so it really yeah. bugs me when I see that in these papers all the time. It's why they justify the overreach that they do. Sure. Um, and I, I was talking about in the earlier segment, I was talking about the KYC AML and how there's about 90 trillion of, of uh, global GDP. And of that global GDP, 90 trillion, they estimate about 3% of that is criminal. And uh, again, criminal is probably, uh, who, who, you know, who decides what's criminal. So maybe that's, um, you know, some of it's some really bad stuff like, uh, you know, child trafficking, but some of it's probably not. So whatever, call it 3%. So um, 90 trillion, 3% is criminal. They said of that, KYC captures less than 0.1%. Yeah, uh, that's, a, it might be from a study from a guy named Dr. Ron Paul. He's another cool Dr. Ron Paul. <laughs> yeah, he is, I, I caught I caught him yeah. and I started diving down his rabbit hole, yeah. Yeah, it's because I, I was diving down that rabbit hole too and his name just kept popping up on all the research and he did a, his PhD in basically the ineffectiveness of those policies. And so he did, he did all the hard work. So all those like numbers come from his work. And yeah, man, it's, it's, um, he has a, he has a saying, it's, uh, it's, um, zero effectiveness, infinite cost. That's what those policies are now where there's, they don't do what they're supposed to do. And all they do is create extra costs on banks, um, who are fined for not complying with their ineffective policies. And then those, those, uh, banks have to pass on those costs to consumers. And so he's made it his life's work to try to fight or raise awareness about that stuff. And I think everyone should follow that guy. Yeah. And then I saw it was like, um, business compliance is estimated at $2 trillion a year, 2% of global economy. So, um, 2% of global economy, some institutions spend up to 500 million annually. The top 10% of businesses spend at least a hundred million. That's so nice. like, um, I think of things like TSA, what a friggin' nightmare going through the airport. Um, in California, we have like border patrols. We have like checkpoints we have to go through. And just randomly on a day, all of a sudden you have to wait in line for an hour so they can just like wave traffic through. So like they're going to inconvenience, you know, whatever, hundreds of thousands of people to maybe potentially catch like one illegal alien where they can go get like hundreds, you know, just at Home Depot. Um, but or TSA, but in, in this example here, it's like, 
So they're going to incon not not just inconvenience us, uh, the ninety nine point nine percent, not just inconvenience, but put us in harm because now we've had to give up all our identity um, in these honeypots that get hacked all the time. So ninety nine percent, ninety nine point nine percent of people are inconvenienced and put at risk to potentially maybe catch the zero point one percent of people. I mean, it's insanity. It's insane. And then and so. And then these, uh, you know, the Bank of International Settlements, that's how they justify, you know, having a CBD system that doesn't have, you know, anonymity in it, is they say like, well, we need to do this stuff when they can't do it right now without the, you know, control of a CBDC and the surveillance of a CBDC. So you'd basically be infringing on the, the rights and the privacy of all these law-abiding citizens to catch a very, very tiny sliver of you know terrorists or, or criminals so um it's it's really it's it's kind of shocking to be honest with you but at the same time i wouldn't really expect less from uh these large organizations like this yeah so if we have like this uh if we have like this almost the banking's kind of like this decentralized stack so you have uh you know, you have at the bottom, you have like a local bank, farmers and merchant bank credit union, and then you have the commercial banks, and then you have the central banks. Um, and then, you know, since the central banks give reserves to the to the commercial banks, and then the commercial banks are the ones extending credit. So my local bank, for example, I'm like, hey, I'm, uh, I'm in, I'm, I want to start an avocado stand. And he's like, well, people in, in California love avocados, great. Um, but they know what I want here. And so there's like this decentralized kind of decision making um, versus the Fed, right? So but then you know, we have the commercial banks and we have the Fed, but then above that, then the IMF and BIS, and it's almost like they just want to compress that whole stack down so we could have an account directly with the BIS, which, you know, on one hand, I guess it makes the cross-border payments better, um, but then the trade-off is then the amount of privacy we give up. But then, uh, I mean, is the, are each nation going to lay down their sovereignty for that? Yeah, and... <laughs> You're exactly right. And also the commercial banks, it basically takes all the commercial banks out of the picture. Right. And so a lot of the, the working papers in the Bank of International Settlements, their concerns aren't about, you know, protecting the rights of individuals. I don't think they really care that much about that. But they do care about the restructuring of the entire banking industry because this would basically bypass commercial banks. Because right now you have basically, you know, users, it's kind of users go directly to commercial banks and do lending like you said and they handle all the communications with the users and the central banks are in the background and they don't want to get into all that if they have a direct cbdc suddenly they'll have to have an entire lending you know branch in the central bank and deal with all the headaches of aml kyc like we said and day-to-day -day customer service and so they don't want to have this system where it just like takes the commercial banks out. So they're trying to design something like a hybrid where they don't have to deal with the headaches of all the things commercial banks have to deal with. And so that's kind of actually the main holdup right now from the Bank of International Settlements, you know, viewpoint. Hmm. The main holdup is, uh, is getting more surveillance and, and more policies in? <laughs> no, not. They want that. No, they just don't want to change the entire structure of the banking oh, system by having right, a direct right, right. account and bypassing the commercial banks and basically putting them out of business like there would be no need for yeah. them anymore right and and uh they're like best friends so they don't 
mess with their commercial bank friends. Right, right, right. And just, it's, just, it's a dangerous world. I was at a conference speaking recently with Professor Richard Werner, who's an expert oh, wow, at yeah. Central Banks. Yeah. Um, and he had some very interesting things to say. I want to tell you what he said at his talk. I actually agreed with him, and then I didn't agree with him. I'm going to fill you in with that. I'm going to get back. We'll talk about what he said. We'll talk about the Central Bank digital currency some more. Uh, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show. I'm in the studio with Sam Callahan uh, talking about uh, the coup of the central bankers, the BIS, uh, something that you maybe haven't heard of or thought about, but you should because ignoring it isn't going to make it go away. Uh, we're talking about Bitcoin, the decentralized revolution, um, like I said, the banking sector, and how they may try to compress the stack on you and what that means. I'll be back with a lot more. Don't go away. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. All right, welcome back. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show. We're talking about the decentralized revolution. We're talking about the converging trends of politics, finance, and technology, and Bitcoin, and how it's changing the world. I'm in the studio with Sam Callahan. Uh, he's a Bitcoin analyst with Swan Bitcoin, and we're talking about this this banking stack. So the stack starting from my local bank to my commercial bank to my central bank to the IMF and the BIS, which most people have never heard of, the Bank of International Settlements. But now you are. Um, so Sam, right before we went on the break, I was talking about how I recently spoke at a conference with uh, Professor Richard Werner, and he's an expert with central banks and uh, advisor and so forth. And his talk that he gave at the conference was, was amazing. And uh, the whole thing was centered on how we need to decentralize the banks, how this growing trend to centralization is a, is a massive problem. And, and he had all these facts and all these charts and, I mean, so much research showing how much better things were when the banks were decentralized and all the risks of what happens as the banks continue to get more and more centralized. And I was like, wow, that's great. That's, that's, that's exactly what we think as, as people that think about Bitcoin. Um, but then I was on a panel with him. And then uh, the question was like, um, so, you know, you believe in this, like, you know, this need for banks to decentralize. But how exactly would we do that? Like, how does that just happen? And he's like, well, we just need more people to go open banks. <laughs> that was his answer. And I'm like, well, uh, in order to open up a bank, I have to get like a banking license from the Fed. Uh, they don't just give those out to anybody. And um, that's the reason why we don't have more banks. I mean, what do you, um, what do you think about that kind of response? I mean, I think that's spot on. If, if you know anything about like how many banking license gets out after 2008, I think it's like 13 or something. And it used to be like right. dozens a year. But we've seen concentration of banks, and that's kind of how they like hold off their monopoly of power. They don't let any banks be created. So, you know, it, it's one of those things like that classic uh, Milton Friedman uh, quote where it's like a sly roundabout way yeah. um, around the system instead of trying to fix a broken system. Jeff Booth talks about that a lot. Like, you can't fix a system that's fundamentally broken. We need to create a parallel system. 
And I agree with that kind of framework. You know, I'm a big fan of Richard Werner. I think he's been talking about central banks way before everybody else was. And he's he's an expert. Um, I recommend reading his book, Princes of the Yen. And there's a really good YouTube video um, as well, like a documentary. Um, but here I'd have to d- disagree with him. <laughs> yeah. Well, because he uh, the, the, the disagreement part, um, again, we I think we all agree with him on the problem. The centralization of banking. The the thing that we disagree on is the solution to that problem. And um, to your point, I mean, it's the 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 system is so clogged up, it's so jammed up. It was um, F. A. Hayek that said that quote. Um, oh yeah, there you go. Sorry. Um, Never be a sound money again until we take the thing from the hands of the government. But it can't be done by force, but rather a sly roundabout way. Um, but that's exactly right. And kind of uh, to your point, like Jeff Booth talking about these these parallel structures. Um, I've studied a lot, um, really, how the Soviet Union, the USSR, fell, and some of the writings of uh, Vaclav Havel, and and uh, mainly him. He was uh, put in prison for three years for speaking out against the government, and then he became on became the president of Czechoslovakia. And uh, he said that the way that the USSR fell was through these parallel systems, and so. Um, people were so regulated by the system that they were forced to go live outside of it. Um, so like all these people being sanctioned and getting kicked out of the financial system, they're going to go find another system. And eventually, because so many people had left the system that the sanctions didn't really matter anymore. And then by the time the Soviet Union fell, it didn't really impact that many people because not that many people depended on the system anymore. And uh, that I guess that's what we're kind of seeing, right? There's a way we can start getting people out of the financial system to build that parallel system and then maybe cushion that blow. Yeah, well, that sounds very familiar to what we're seeing today, isn't it? Like uh, with, with right. the Canadian truckers and the increased weaponization of the financial system against, you know, government's own citizens. And I think that's it's like the best marketing for Bitcoin, right? When you have this other option that nobody can control, it's a parallel working system. If if they keep weaponizing it against the citizens, they will find the other option that's not going to be weaponized against them. And that one's Bitcoin Um, being open source, permissionless, all those good things that we both know. um, I think that's what we're seeing. And I don't know how fast that's going to take or how it's all going to play out. But I think at this point, if they if the governments continue to do what they're doing with the sanctions and the censorship and the seizures, then it's only a matter of time before more and more people choose a system that doesn't get weaponized against them. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking about that earlier where um, <laughs> I've, I've talked about this quite a bit on YouTube and I had some people say, oh, Mark, you're a shill for Russia. You must be a Russian asset. And it's like, you know, these are, these are complex subjects and I'm certainly not for war. I'm certainly not for killing anybody. Um, but at, at some point, you're going to find yourself on the opposite side. Um, you know, back to the the truckers. I mean, when people donated money, you know, when Go, when the GoFundMe got seized and then people donated Bitcoin, that was legal at the time. And then they went and changed the laws later, right? And then they found themselves on the wrong side of that. And so it can happen very quickly. Um, and I think uh, kind of like... Um, Newton's third law of physics, like every force has an equal and opposite reaction. So like the more they're pushing people out, the more people will go build another system. The more people push back and build another system, the more they're going to squeeze and push more people out. And it's like this like uh, kind of, uh, you know, spiral effect, if you will. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's how I view it as well. Um, Like I said, if they're just going to keep weaponizing the system against them, then more and more people are going to find one that embraces them and doesn't discriminate. And that's that's Bitcoin. Now it seems like um, if it seems like uh, I mean the BIS is talking about this global digital identity system, 
Um, and it seems like um, this China-style social credit score system is coming for the rest of the world. And it, and it really needs this global digital identity system and the CBDC to really put it all together. Um, it seems like, in my opinion, I've been talking about it's like a race. Like, can they get that system um, set up and installed before enough people wake up and just leave the system and go do something on their own? Do you see that race? And if so, what's your uh, take on that or uh, your uh, prediction on that? No, I do see a race. And I, and I think the race is with like Bitcoin adoption. <laughs> I, think, um, I think if Bitcoin becomes more and more popular, you know, what I'm worried about is that the biz or the central banks will rush their own product out because Bitcoin's becoming so popular and they're behind the curve with this stuff. And they're the government. They're not exactly great at technology. Yeah, and so to say the least, <laughs> to say the least. So yeah. I, I think this is far away. Like I said, I think there was a recent report that showed they're hoping for a fed coin by like 2030. But now even, I think that report was like two months ago. And now we have an executive order saying like, no, we need this faster. So we're already 180 seeing, days. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing this race increase very fast like it's all accelerating and i think what we're like personally one of the predictions that i have is is they're actually going to outsource it to the private sector and they're going to have one of these highly regulated uh, stable coin issuers you know come in house and help build um you know fed coin or whatever you want to call it and then it's interesting because it's it's like this stuff doesn't work unless everybody's on a digital id system and so um, it's kind of like the prerequisite. Well, to it, a I mean, it, it doesn't. I mean, I mean, the, the stable coins work without that, right? So. If, if they if they don't want to give us the privacy, then it doesn't work, I guess. And right, right. I don't if think they don't want to give us the privacy. I don't think they want to give us the privacy, and so that's kind of how I see it playing out. I think it's all going to accelerate, um, and then they're probably going to turn to a, to a private stable coin issuer to kind of help lead that that project. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they, they, they pop up all the time. As a matter of fact, they could just take one over, or buy one or whatever. Um, I, uh, I was talking earlier, um, there's an article I was reading about um, the history of the IRS failure to update their own database. For 40 years, they've been unable to update their own databases, and it's caused you know hundreds of thousands of, of mistakes every single year. Um, and then I was talking about the Obamacare when they launched that website. Um, it was a massive problem. People were just trying to shop for insurance, and they spent over $2 billion and couldn't get that launched. So um, they definitely don't have a good history of technology. So we have that on our side. Um, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show. We're talking about Bitcoin and the decentralized revolution. I've been in the studio with Sam Callahan. He's a Bitcoin analyst with Swan Bitcoin, a good place to buy some Bitcoin if you're looking for some. Um, we're talking about the BIS. Um, it's interesting. Anyway, that's what I got for you today. Thanks for listening. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. 
And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.